What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbiotica is your solution to great-tasting all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or artificial nonsense. It's just pure goodness in every pouch. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com. That's C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Welcome to Forward Thinking. Hey there, everyone, and welcome to Forward Thinking, the podcast that looks at the future and says, somewhere they're meeting on a pinhead, calling you an angel, calling you the nicest things. I'm Jonathan Strickland. I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And I'm Joe McCormick. And, you know, guys, I did a an episode of Forward Thinking, the video show, not that long ago, where I started talking about the possibility of weather control devices. And, uh, you know, it turns out weather's pretty complicated stuff. It has a lot of energy involved in it. But there were a lot of people who, who said, why are you talking about this as if this is a possible future thing? We've got one right now. And they all came up with the same example. Do you know what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah. I believe you're talking about a program called HARP, which is a big machine up at the North Pole that's run by reptilians. And Cobra Trans- Commander. Trans-dimensional reptilians. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm talking who about. Who secretly run the world 
And, uh, and I mean, yeah, it causes all kinds of things like like earthquakes. Yep, uh-huh. mind control. Right. Uh, sometimes it hurricanes. Can, uh, hurricanes. It can it can zap stuff right out of the sky. This is all due to a uh, uh, you know the fact that conspiracy theories run rampant on the internet. Now, we're going to actually talk about the High Frequency Active Auroral Research Program, better known as HARP, in With this two podcast. A's. Yes. It's like HARP. HARP. Yeah. So it's a little piratical in that sense. Uh, we're going to talk about what it really does and why there are all these conspiracy theories around it. Now, first of all, let's just get this out of the way. HARP is not a weather control device. It's not able to create hurricanes or uh, guide a tornado or any of that. That we know of or can scientifically uh, prove to be in any way even feasible. Yeah, or, I mean, we can't even... Or we, even hint at, really. Right, yeah. right. We can't... We don't even fully understand all the variables that go into creating the weather patterns that many people attribute to HARP. I mean, we have leading scientists who are always talking about how much we do not know and how much we're still learning about these things. So to assume that we could uh, create and control a, a system as, as tr- destructive and packing as much energy as a hurricane is a little... Um, Far-fetched. Yeah, because, I mean, a hurricane can have as much energy as 10,000 nuclear bombs. That's a lot of energy. You'd think if we could reliably create hurricanes, we'd also have the power to stop them. Yeah, uh, yeah, or at least steer them somewhere else, although that raises its own problems. And maybe the interdimensional reptilians really dislike Florida. Yeah. It could be. Yeah, so let's let's talk about what HARP really is, <laughs> and we'll we'll get back to the conspiracy theory stuff toward the end and kind of talk about what was it that even got these conspiracy theories moving in the first place. Okay, so I was wrong on lots of counts, actually. It's not even at the North Pole, is no, it? No, no, it's in Alaska. Yeah, uh, same thing. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I mean, it's it's in the the general region of the Arctic. Uh, it's in actually the uh, southern central part of Alaska. It's not really close to anything else, which may in fact have lent itself somewhat to the conspiracy theories because it's not easy to get to, it's, or at least uh, you know it's not close to anything else. It's near some. I looked it up on Google Maps. It's like near a hunting lodge or something. Yeah. That was like the and, closest thing I saw. And if you were to look at this place, it would look like it's a forest of antenna. Like there there are various antenna fields, some of them as large as something like 30 acres of antennas that are all spaced out exactly, uh, you know, where they're like eight feet apart. It's kind of and they're 72 feet tall. I mean, this is impressive stuff. Yeah, it looks like a hazard. You jump over in Mario, like if you <laughs> fell into it, you die. Yeah, yeah, it does. Yeah, we're talking like maybe. Well, really, we're talking about Super Mario. OK, I mean, okay Mario, but it's like saying. it's this big field of spiky metal. Yeah. Yeah. So, again, it, lo- it looks a little weird. So what's the deal with this thing? It's actually a a program meant to study the ionosphere which then raises the question what the heck is the ionosphere y'all so the ionosphere is uh the very outer edge of our atmosphere it's technically a, a kind of a a layer within an atmosphere uh some people call it the thermosphere and the ionosphere is part of that so if you're going from the surface of the earth outward you have the troposphere, which is where all the weather happens, right? That's like, you know, all the storms and everything that we think of. That happens in the troposphere. Then you've got the stratosphere, which we've all heard about. That's where, you know, a lot of these weather balloons that are going even higher up to study uh, uh, effects above the troposphere. That's where they are. 
It's also where you hear about things like uh, Google's Project Loon oh, right, going right. into the stratosphere. And there's a lot of different bands of, of, of air moving at different speeds there, so you can kind of catch those to get your stuff where you want it to right, go. Right, right. Yeah, there there are a lot of different bands, but they, they tend to behave in a very predictable way. Right. Much less, you know, you know the troposphere, things can get a little little crazy. You know, it gets party time in the troposphere. In the stratosphere, it's a little more predictable. Then you have the mesosphere, and then you have the ionosphere. Uh, so it's way out there. And uh, some like like 80 kilometers or 50 miles above the surface at its starting point. Yeah, yeah. So uh, the ionosphere isn't at the exact same altitude over every point of the Earth. So I hear the word ion in the prefix of ionosphere. Yeah. What does the ionosphere have to do with ions? Well, that would be exactly where you would expect to find charged particles. That's ions. It's, you know, an ion is essentially an atom that has either lost or gained an electron. And in this case, we're talking about particles that have been zapped by the sun's energy. This is the part of our atmosphere that's absorbing some of the more harmful rays coming from the sun, like X-rays, for example. Now, as it absorbs that, the particles that absorb it get more energy and become ions. Thus, you have the ionosphere. And so you've got these magnetic fields that the Earth has, and you have these ions that are essentially trapped in that layer, this thin layer called the ionosphere. So it's an interesting... um, uh, part of the Earth's atmosphere. It's really useful because it helps block some of the stuff that would otherwise harm us. It also allows us to do stuff like have long-range radio communication. You know, when uh, when um, Marconi wanted to send a message across the Atlantic. How are you going to do that? Because after 200 miles, the uh, curvature of the Earth will prevent line of sight, won't it? Right, and you would think radio waves travel in a straight line. How the heck could you get a radio wave to go? It just hit the water and that's it. No, it actually turns out that the radio wave, when directed toward the sky, would bounce off the ionosphere and reflect back down to Earth, thus allowing a transatlantic broadcast. And the first broadcast was three dots, which represents the letter S in Morse code. So uh, that was the the reason why that was possible was because the ionosphere, which at the time no one really truly understood. It, and we're still learning about the ionosphere because it's so far out there that our weather balloons don't get to it. And our satellites are kind of above it for the most part. So that means that, you know, to study it directly, we'd have to find some other means of doing it. Enter HARP. As a long introduction for this for this facility, but it, it warrants it, right? Because you have to understand that uh, really the goal here was to learn more about radio waves, about the ionosphere, about the interaction between radio waves and the ionosphere, about what uh, causes things like auroras, which are those beautiful lights that you could see. The, you know, the northern lights are what we often call them. Right. Uh, and in fact, southern lights as well. Southern lights, in mm-hmm. fact, also happen. Uh, so this is the the layer where that stuff happens, and this is why it was, you know, kind of an important way, of, you know, an important thing to to build to study that. Uh, but wasn't this all funded partially by the military? Largely. Why by the military. would the military want to know about science? An excellent question. <laughs> why would the military be interested in funding it? Well, let, let me guess. Telekinesis. Wrong. So, uh, you know, although we'll, we'll get into how the military was sold on this later on in this <laughs> podcast, which again ties into some of the conspiracy theory stuff. But in general, really what the military was interested in was finding ways to make more effective communication systems. A couple of different reasons for this. Uh, in the 1950s, 
so the University of Alaska started building equipment to study effects of radio waves in the ionosphere during heavy ionic uh, uh, activity. So, for example, solar when, flares or yeah, like when auroras were active. You okay. know, Alaska is far enough up there. But yeah, auroras come because of solar flares. Right? right. You get this crazy ionic activity. You get this beautiful light show. And one drawback for communications is that sometimes radio waves get absorbed rather than reflected back. And uh, in the 1950s, if you if it meant that you couldn't have a long distance communication active in the Arctic region, that was bad news for the United States, which at the time was engaged in what we call the Cold War with the then Soviet Union. And the idea was that if you if you can't have reliable communication with, say, an aircraft carrying nuclear weapons uh, <laughs> that's flying toward the Soviet Union in the case of worst case scenario. That could be bad. That could be bad. So there were there was a lot of uh, a lot of need to study this this effect and figure out ways around it. So there was that. There's also the Navy that was interested in this because, uh, as it turns out, radio waves like our, our average radio waves that we tend to use for communications are not good at penetrating seawater. Seawater is conductive. It can uh, cause some scintillation. You get this weird changes in amplitude and frequency. And in other words, you cannot reliably use radio communication for something like a submarine that's submerged. So what do you do? Well, it turns out extremely low frequency and very low frequency radio waves, which have much longer wavelengths and very low frequencies, can penetrate seawater much more deeply than your average high-frequency radio waves can. So if you were able to build something that could you know, transmit these uh, these waves to a submarine, then you could issue commands that without having to worry about making them surface first. Uh, there are some downsides. You wouldn't be able to have two-way communication because, as it turns out, you have to have an antenna that kind of uh, matches the length of the wavelength we're talking about here, uh, at least in some form of ratio, right? right? So ideally, if you want a resonant antenna, your antenna should be the same length as the wavelength of the radio It wave. should be one-to-one, one, right? And so if we're talking extremely low frequency radio waves, you're talking of a wavelength of around 100,000 kilometers, which is not practical for your average submarine. Uh, not even your if, average submarine. <laughs> even if you were to go with a fraction, it would still be so huge you could never use a submarine. You could never have that attached to a submarine. So you might be able to use the Earth itself as part of your antenna and thus be able to eat up some of that distance that is necessary for you to be able to transmit, but you wouldn't be able to put that on a submarine so it could it could talk back. You could send messages to it. They couldn't talk back unless they then surfaced so that they could use regular high-frequency radio waves. So, okay, so all of this is making sense. So yeah. we've got this data station and and research facility that has been sponsored by the Office of Naval Research, mm -hmm. um, the Air Force Research Laboratory, and DARPA. And uh, I, I believe it came online originally in 1999. Yep. It didn't really hit full strength until something like 2007 when it got the full array Yeah, going. the full array of antennas. Yeah, they had an initial uh, smaller array of antennas active in 99, and it took uh, almost a decade for them to get up to the, what was supposed to be the full facility. Uh, so 2007 is really when they get you know, fully operational in, in Death Star standards. Um, <laughs> but, uh, at, but, but, but it wasn't just the military no, that was involved. There, was, there were a lot of research facilities, right? Yeah, in fact, lots of universities were part of this and, and have been part of it from the beginning. Uh, University of Alaska, of course, is a big one. They've been kind of very the pioneer involved. of it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They, a lot of their work was stuff that went into the initial approach. 
Uh, you also have Stanford, Cornell, UCLA, MIT. There are a lot of different universities uh, that have been part of this project. And, you know, it's there's a lot of valuable science that's going on. Now, from the military standpoint, they want things that are applicable, right? They want things that they can use as soon as possible to make their operations more effective. Uh, the scientists, they it's not that they don't want that, but they also want to do exploratory science. Well, yeah, because <clears throat> we can never predict what all of the applications of exploratory science are going to be. I mean, when we learn things about the natural world that might just seem like, you know, pure information with no technological application a lot of times 10 years down the road it's like oh good thing we know oh, wait, that because because now we can make this thing that cleans your bathtub with the power of of puppy magic yeah that's <laughs> that's almost exactly how i would have phrased that uh yeah no no you're absolutely right exploratory science by its very nature gives rise to developments that we could not anticipate because we're exploring, right? I mean, exploring is one of those things I'm really excited about in just about every avenue because you never know what you're going to uncover and what could potentially become not only useful, but uh, maybe it's going to be the the core of some new technology that makes, you know, it could completely transform life um, as we know it. Yeah. So. Uh, okay. So, so. We've talked a little bit about some of the parts that that Harp includes, but what exactly is is on the list here? All right, so we've got a uh, let's 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 run down a list of of some of the equipment at this facility. We've talked about how there are a lot of these uh, antenna arrays, but what is that, exactly does that mean? Well, first you got your high power, high frequency phased array radio transmitter, which has the uh, name the Ionosphere Research Instrument or IRI. And that's specifically used to stimulate small, well-defined volumes of the ionosphere, regions uh, nor, more or less directly above the HARP facility. Yeah, it can't really range out of it. It's working sort of like a magnifying glass, the way that the array is set up, so that it's just pinpointing a, a very small amount of, of ionosphere. Yeah. In the, most, in the simplest terms here, you're talking about aiming radio waves up at the sky to do stuff in the ionosphere. Yeah, you're, yes. essentially you're exciting... Uh, the particles up in the ionosphere, adding energy to them. So in, in many cases, you'll hear a phrase like the ion, an ionosphere heater, yeah. where they're heating the ionosphere. Now, in this case, it's not like they got a whole bunch of hair dryers and they're pointing them up at the sky. Or they're exciting particles. Exactly. Right? They're using radio waves to excite particles. Now, when you're exciting particles, you're adding energy. They start moving around faster. Heat is essentially the movement of molecules. So really, it's not that it's um, misleading or anything. It's just kind of, I think a lot of us think of heating, like you've uh, added well, some sort of heating element up there, but yeah. that's not really what's going on. And the heat is really a byproduct of everything else yeah. that they're studying. Yeah, so uh, the idea here is that they use this to excite certain small regions of the ionosphere directly above the HARP facility uh, and then run various experiments on it. Now, this this does do th cool things, like it creates plasma. So you get uh, ionized gas, which is a conductive gas, right? It's got free ions running through it. You can actually run an electrical current through plasma. So, uh, And there already are plasma bands in the ionosphere. It's not like we're introducing something that isn't already there. Uh, this is just kind of a way of studying that. So they also have a high-frequency ionosonde, also known as a chirp sounder. I love that term. And this is a type of radar. Yeah, it's they, they chirp at the sky. No, I wasn't laughing at the chirp. I was laughing at the first word. Say that again. 
I am a sonde. It's like a French dessert. Yeah. <laughs> Monsieur. The Ayana Sonda Alamode. I would totally order that. Yeah, I'm sure it'd be very uh, but, uh, ionic. Okay, what does a chirp sounder do? So it, it's a radar. It emits uh, high-frequency radio waves over a very wide range of frequencies, and it's specifically used to examine the ionosphere, as you would expect from Ayana Sonda. Yeah. Um, uh, and so engineers would use these to find the ideal operation frequencies for two-way radio communications in most cases. So in other words, you might use this to see, all right, well, this particular frequency band is going to be the most effective considering the distance between the two communication points. Uh, now, of course, HARP is using it to really study the effects that their other instruments have upon the ionosphere itself. Then you've got the extremely low frequency and very low frequency receivers. Uh, so yeah, ELF and VLF. These are those uh, frequencies I was talking about. They, they, If you're looking at the extremely low frequency range, typically we say that's 3 to 30 hertz, but in atmospheric science, it actually is 3 hertz to 3 kilohertz. Oof, okay. and, then, and then very low is 3 kilohertz to 30 kilohertz. And this is where we get into those crazy long wavelengths. So uh, on the short end, if you're talking about 30 kilohertz, you're talking about around 10 kilometers for your wavelength. And on the long end, if you're going all the way down to three hertz, you're talking about 100,000 kilometers. So these are incredibly long uh, uh, radio waves. And, um, and uh, this is that stuff that's going to possibly do better than than or that does do better than regular radio and in, in like submarines and things. Sure. It, it's also one of the other and this is something else the military was very interested in. One of the other things it can do is penetrate the ground and potentially discover things like the location of an underground bunker which you could probably understand the military would think, hey, that's, that's handy. I'll yeah. take one of those. Uh, they also, uh, the, another reason why they have these receivers is because they discovered that by agitating the ionosphere, you could create these frequencies of, of uh, radio waves up in the ionosphere. And so the thought was maybe you could do that instead of building those incredibly huge antenna to uh, to broadcast a summary, maybe you could just use the ionosphere itself. However, that hasn't really panned out. Um, then you have mag- magnetometers uh, or magnetometers, as I like to call them. Uh, these are not used to measure supervillains, but rather to measure magnetic fields, their their strength and their direction. I think it's technically magnetom eaters. Magnetom eaters. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, Joe. Always keeping us on task. And then uh, we have uh, rheometers. Uh, which I was going to make a 1980s new wave Durand reference, Durand but joke, yeah, yeah, I'm not gonna, I'm gonna back off of that. But no, that's that stands for the <laughs> good, good job avoiding that reference. They entirely. measure Rios. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if only, uh, no. But this is a relative ionospheric opacity meter, and that measures electromagnetic wave absorption in the ionosphere. Uh, now, that was originally developed by researchers at the University of Alaska. This was what I was talking about when they wanted to find out the effects of aurora on radio waves. Okay. This uh-huh. is the sort of technology they were developing. Then you have a UHF diagnostic radar, which is a radar that works at ultra-high frequency radio wave uh, frequencies, if I can be a little repetitive and redundant. And then you have, uh, finally, optical and infrared spectrometers and cameras, which are used to observe the complex natural variations of Alaska's ionosphere, as well as to detect artificial effects produced by the IRI. So that's kind of a rundown on the general uh, equipment that they're using over at HARP, or that they have been using at HARP, and, uh, and what that stuff is supposed to do. So there you go. 
Okay. Yeah. Uh, so we, we've covered a bunch of the different ways that this equipment is being used, but um, I think... I think the ones that we haven't covered so far involve uh, uh, space applications. Yeah, there are a couple of different space applications. Well, one is is just figuring out how to uh, how to handle things like solar flares more effectively. So when a solar flare uh, impacts the Earth, uh, you're talking about a lot of these high energy particles interacting and energy interacting with our ionosphere, making it more um, aggravated, active, maybe we could mm-hmm. say. Like you probably have heard stories about so giant solar flare storms that caused spectacular aurora, right? Uh, there was a solar storm in the 1800s that I believe they said it was caused all kinds of electrical malfunctions around the world. Yeah, and there and supposedly people as far south as Cuba could see the northern lights. Oh my goodness. Wow. Which is phenomenal. I mean, normally you can't see those if you're south of say Canada. I mean, don't get me wrong, I want my laptop to continue working, but I but that would be really cool. No, it'd be kind of pretty to see, but I I'm actually willing to travel up there to see it rather than <laughs> Have it zap the entire power grid because, yeah, it can cause electromagnetic interference, which is a major problem in today's technology. Well, we we didn't have orbital electronics back then. And if we had, I'm sure it would have been a really bad scene for them. One of the other things that that I think they say can sort of like pump the uh, the ionosphere like like a solar storm would also be a high altitude nuclear explosion. Sure. So if you had like a somebody detonate a nuclear bomb way up high up off the surface of the earth, it could set off this chain of reactions that could it could do the same thing. It could cause major sort of like an atmospheric EMP sort yeah, of thing. Lots of charged particles bouncing around that would interfere with electronics and potentially damage satellites that we depend on for all kinds of things. So yeah, there's the potential of using HARP to at least study ways where we can mitigate that as much as possible should that ever happen. Yeah. There's also the idea of using, I mean, there, some of the experiments they, they've done is, uh, they've created plasma and optical emissions using this high frequency radio beams to excite the ionosphere, which is this is part of the exploratory science, right? They're just kind of zapping it to see what happens, <laughs> which I, I, I'm, I'm oversimplifying. So I do apologize if any of the folks out there have actively worked on these projects. But it's really to kind of learn more about these interactions and find out exactly what are the the uh, the mechanisms behind it. And, you know, are there any useful applications? It's kind of a secondary consideration. We're really just learning about basics of our atmosphere here. There's also a, a, a study of the moon's surface using HARP, which I thought this was super interesting. They were using a ground-based radar and firing it at the moon, essentially. So you're, you're shooting radar waves toward the moon. Okay, so they're trying to blow up the moon. They're looking at the moon. They're just looking at the moon. But these radio, these radar waves, rather, are hitting the moon, and then they would reflect off. And instead of trying to collect this information back on the Earth, where you would run into problems where uh, there's this effect called scintillation. Scintillation doesn't mean you suddenly become uh, incredibly interesting in conversation. It means that it actually can change the amplitude and frequency of waves so that you get uh, corrupted data when it comes back. Uh, right. right, because it's traveling through all through of those our layers atmosphere. of the atmosphere. Yeah. And so you end up having a 
problem there. So how do you get around that? Well, in this case, HARP was partnering with NASA. So a NASA satellite was receiving the reflected, the echoes of that radar transmission and getting the actual data of the moon's surface. So they were able to study the moon's surface from the Earth using radar and uh, using a, a, a satellite to collect the information, which is kind of a cool thing. In fact, according to, to the folks at HARP, it's the first time anything like that had ever been done using ground-based technology to do a radar study of a celestial body that was then collected by a spacecraft, uh, which, you know, the way if you phrase it like that, it sounds like that's a, the, a plot line in a Star Trek episode. So I thought that was really cool. So that kind of covers the basic uh, uses of HARP so far, but there have also been a couple of others that have been mentioned as potential uses. Uh, we uh, covered one with the, the nuclear, the the dealing with a nuclear situation where yeah. you're trying to or, uh, or contain a solar particles. Storm. Yeah, there, there's also, uh, in May 2013, the National Academies, they had a workshop in Washington where they basically just talked about the future of HARP. Are we going to fund it? What use is it? You know, um, And so they had a report that came out on this workshop, and that listed some of the potential practical uses that the scientists attending the conference talked about. One of the ones that I thought was really interesting was about space debris. Mm-hmm. They imagined using something like HARP or uh, at least research that came out of HARP to help deorbit old satellites and spacecraft that have become space debris. So we know the problem of space debris. Jonathan did a video on it one time. We've done a podcast. But basically a satellite outlives its usefulness or it stops working or something like that. But and it, we don't have a pull string to bring it back down to Earth. So it's basically just up there until it loses orbit. Right. And the the worry is, oh well, we don't want it crashing into anything, or... right? And especially not in space, like currently working satellites. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, but uh, it's speculated that you could send harp signals that might be able to trigger an ion outflow, and what that would do is increase the drag on a targeted space vehicle. So you'd have a, a satellite that you want to deorbit, and this ion outflow could help slow it down. So that its orbit decays quicker and it burns up in the atmosphere. Yeah. So you're essentially you're you're like creating an electromagnetic drag on this thing. Yeah. Which is pretty a, cool. Putting a parachute behind uh, it, sort of. Obviously, also hypothetical right now. It's not something that we've necessarily done. Right. This is a speculation about possible future applications right. of HARP. Well, and this was last year, obviously, yeah. when its future was less certain. But it could still apply to research along the lines of HARP. Yeah. And keep in mind, like the reason why we're saying, why we're couching all this is because currently uh, it looks like HARP is going to be completely defunded in the near future. It already shut down once in the summer of 2013. Actually, at the toward the end of May 2013, uh, and it was only reported on by around July of 2013 that uh, – that HARP had shut down. There was that the facility was empty. All the generators had been turned off. I like the website was down because no one could pay the University of Alaska to keep it up. Yeah, which that's pretty serious right there. I mean, yeah, yeah. I think I think the first website I ever made is still up somewhere on the internet. But, <laughs> I think um, GeoCities finally took mine down. Oh yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's an it's an yeah it's a you let me guess let me guess Genesis Middies. I'm not gonna. Is that your I'm website? Not, I'm not gonna dignify that with a response. At any rate, he means so yes. <laughs> so at any rate, the uh, it shut down. It the the explanation was that it was actually changing hands. That a different uh, group was coming in to take over the facility, 
and it came back online briefly anyway, but it's already, this is the beginning of 2014 when we're recording this podcast. And uh, at the moment, it sounds like once the Department of Defense is done with a series of final experiments, uh, this facility may shut down unless some other group comes in and takes it over because it's really expensive to run. Yeah. I mean, I have a vague feeling that someone's going to be interested in keeping this thing going. Um, like but Cobra just, Commander. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Or the interdimensional... Reptilians. Uh, reptilians. Yeah. Okay. So I already have a good theory as to why the interdimensional reptilians are a no-go in terms of explaining this, but we can get into by, the by not existing into the into the conspiracy <laughs> theories now. I okay. Think, right. Uh, yeah. Definitely. But, yeah. But here's my thing on the reptilians. Okay. We all know that they live in underground chambers, right? Right. And secretly rule the world from these vast underground caverns. What is one of the things that Harp can do? Help us detect underground bunkers. The reptilians don't want to have their bunkers If they're discovered. the ones controlling it, then they can just point it at all the places where the bunkers aren't. Oh, okay, wait. first of all, none of us believe about these <laughs> these reptilians. Let's make okay, that clear. Yeah. We're all being very facetious. Let, let's discuss all of the bizarre stuff we've seen people saying about Harp on the Internet. Well, let's let's be fair. Okay, so there are a lot of conspiracy theories about Harp. Fringe and, theories, please. Thank you. Conspiracy theories about Harp <laughs> uh, on the fringe. And, um, <laughs> these fringe theories are, are, there's, there's a seed there. I can understand why the seed had been planted and grown into a beautiful fringe flower in some people's minds. So if you look back at the history of Harp, there was a fellow, uh, physicist by the name Bernard Eastland who patented several different, uh, well, he filed for several patents and, and got patents for these ideas that he had about uh, exciting the ionosphere. So he was looking at using this big natural gas deposit that had been found in Alaska as means to fuel an ionosphere heater. So the same sort of technology we're talking about to study the effects on the ionosphere. But he also uh, hypothesized about some other things that this device might possibly do. And these are things that have taken hold in the minds of people who really subscribe to these fringe theories. So here are two, and these these are direct quotes from the uh, one of the patents. One was, weather modification is possible by, for example, altering upper atmosphere wind patterns or altering solar absorption patterns by constructing one or more plumes of atmospheric particles which will act as a lens or focusing device. Another is, and again I quote, as alluded to earlier, missile or aircraft destruction, deflection, or confusion could result, particularly when relativistic particles are employed. Also, large regions of the atmosphere could be lifted to an unexpectedly high altitude so that missiles encounter unexpected and unplanned drag forces with resultant destruction or deflection of same. I would like to put in at this juncture that when um, the government approves a patent, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're stamping it with with something that just says science fact. Yeah. Um, this is all theorization. Yeah. Yeah. From... It was completely hypothetical. And furthermore, there was no need to actually prove that it works in order to get oh, a patent. Yeah. I mean, this is something tons of people take advantage of. You you just you have an idea and you patent it. That, that doesn't mean it works. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So and in, in fact, when uh, the Department of Defense decided to do a feasibility study, Based on these ideas, uh, they w looked at a, a bunch of different companies to, you know, contract out and, and try and build stuff to do this. And one of those companies had a consultant named Dennis Papadopoulos. And uh, Papadopoulos 
ended up looking at these these uh, projected ideas of East Lens and said, yeah, that's not that would not work. I mean, it wouldn't work even if you had this placed at an ideal location, which the area in Alaska was not ideal for these particular applications like weather modification and destroying a missile. Um, he said, even if it were in the best position on the planet, it still wouldn't work. However, important science could be done using this kind of technology. So if we can just figure out a way to sell it to the military, then we can get the money to build it, and then we can actually do research. And he, his point was saying that radio research had really taken a back seat for a really long time, since the 1950s, really. And that in order to get back to doing you know groundbreaking research... You know, you had to figure out how you're going to fund it. And he didn't want to create false reasons, right? He didn't want to give them a false sense of this is what this device can po- possibly do. Of course not. But I mean, but the military and the government, especially a couple decades ago, had a great deal of money to, to throw at scientific pursuits like this. Yeah. And just, you know, angling it so that they would pick up on that. Yeah, and in this case, he the way he angled it was rather than talk about weather modification and missiles being destroyed, he would talk more about the extremely low frequency and very low frequency bands and, and the possible applications that could be, those could be used. And that's what got the, the ball rolling. And so um, there's another interesting conspiracy theory about HARP besides weather modification. So, so the weather modification thing doesn't really pan out. It's just there's no way that HARP could really do it. They can't direct any sort of energy to lens the atmosphere. Plus, the weather happens in the troposphere and the ionosphere is really far away from the troposphere. One thing I do want to clarify, I think what you're saying is that it's not just that, hey, this isn't what they're trying to do. It's that even if they wanted to, they probably couldn't control the weather. I guess they might be able to change a little bit of parts of the atmosphere directly above their own research facility, but I'm not sure if that would... I think the most they could do is maybe change how much... Like, 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 like how much the, solar radiation how much gets solar radiation gets gets in so that because because you know weather patterns are largely affected by changes in heat that's the yeah. main that's the main thing that changes these weather patterns right so in theory if you were able to change the amount of energy coming into the earth you would therefore change the weather but it would not be in a necessarily predictable or controllable way so even if that was the purpose of harp it would it it'd be like you know just Turning on a switch and having no idea what the effect was going to be. It's not like you could have any sort of controlled experience, even if that was what you had intended. Well, interdimensional reptilians are chaotic evil, so they don't really care. How would you know? You're not chaotic evil, according to the the, the test we all took. Uh, I'm lawful good, as it turns out, and a liar. <laughs> yeah, I'll believe that. Uh, yeah, you haven't read my you haven't read my my alignment readout. Uh, it's hilarious. So another conspiracy theory was that Harp could possibly create earthquakes. We mentioned that at the top of the show, right? That it could somehow create earthquakes. There are two ways I have heard about this happening, and both of them are not really feasible. Now, one is kind of interesting in that uh, some scientists say that uh, before an earthquake happens, you you might be able to detect uh, ELF or VLF frequencies because the pressures in the ground are compressing minerals that will give off these frequencies just naturally through that compression. So if you had a detector somewhere nearby, you could, in theory, detect those variations and thus predict when an earthquake is going to happen. 
So thereby, by a like piezoelectric kind of effect, uh-huh. maybe if you put those frequencies into those minerals, you could trigger an earthquake. That's that's the that's one of the hypotheses, which I I, I hesitate to even call it that. Uh, it is not necessarily realistic, but that's not the chief one about how people thought harp was somehow creating earthquakes. Here's here's what they were really thinking, and this one is what <laughs> I don't know. It just to me it, it seems completely unfeasible. Um, so imagine that you are lifting part of the atmosphere up, like you're actually raising up the ionosphere, and then you let it slam down, and somehow the pressure of it slamming back down is what induces an earthquake to happen. It, this theory does not seem to, to, to explain what would happen to the rest of us on the surface of the ground yeah. if, if this was actually powerful enough for it to induce an earthquake, nor does it explain the fact that any energy it would exert coming down would be equivalent to the amount of energy used to raise it up, right? That's basic physics. If I raise a, a one, a one kilogram mass to a certain distance off the ground and drop it, you know, it's not like it's going to exert more energy than it costs to raise it up that high. It's going to be exactly the same. That's physics. So what you're talking about is this facility doing this would have to be able to create enough energy to essentially shake the ground exactly. itself. I right. Mean, you wouldn't need to shoot it up at the atmosphere. You'd have essentially some sort of earthquake button right there at your disposal. And the energy that HARP is putting forth is, I think, something like 3.6 megawatts, which, don't get me wrong, that's oh, a lot a of energy. Sure. But it's not enough to create an earthquake. No. So, that was another one. Also, I, a thing to keep in mind when we're talking about all of these conspiracy theories and HARP um, is that so radiation from the sun is hitting the ionosphere all the time, yeah. continually, and a lot more than HARP is capable of producing. Right. Um, like orders of, of hundreds of thousands. Of, yeah. Of yeah. We're talking more. we're talking like, you know, I mean, the the sun's energy is what makes the ionosphere happen in the first place. Right. Yeah. And HARP is only able to excite a relatively teeny tiny region of that ionosphere, like a, a, a sliver of it. So. You know, the fact that the sun is doing this naturally all the time is another kind of mark against harp doing anything that would affect, you know, things on a global scale. Oh, right. Or, or even on a weaponized kind of yeah. scale. Um, and further, <laughs> f- furthermore, I mean, I mean, some of these some of these theories are, are talking about moving sections of the ionosphere. And even if harp could move a section of the ionosphere that was not directly above itself, and I don't think it wants to cause itself to experience an earthquake. Um, The the ionosphere undulates all the time. It expands and contracts based on on the degree of the Earth's tilt and whether it's nighttime or daytime. I mean, this happens constantly. Right, right. So So it's not like, yeah, yeah, I think think a lot of the theories, uh, the fringe theories, are based on just misunderstandings of science. I mean, it's just you don't have a full understanding of what's going on. And so you're you're oversimplifying in your mind how things work. And thus, when you do that, then suddenly everything becomes possible, right? If, if you oversimplify everything and don't don't acknowledge how complex and difficult some of these problems really would be to do for realsies, then obviously this this secret facility in Alaska, which, by the way, wasn't really secret, although it was very much restricted because they were doing lots of of uh, scientific uh, study that didn't, you know, they didn't need people butting in on all the time. Uh, Well, I read at least one account of some uh, amateur ham radio enthusiast who just 
went on up to the facility and yeah. walked around and the met- the policy was supposed to be it's a closed door facility that uh, very rarely was open to the public. It was only open yeah, to the like public a couple times. Once, yeah. once every couple of years. And then, of course, they would let, you know, college students could go up there and work on it because they were parts of research programs. It's, you know, you don't typically uh, – maybe I'm basing this off bias, but the college students I remember <laughs> are not necessarily the ones you, in, you invite into your super secret <laughs> – Headquarters for world domination and weather control. It's, I, they're all part of the theory, and all the other research about the ionosphere is is uh, it, they, bad leader material. They're only allowed misdirect. in the ping pong room. Yeah. They're not allowed to see the real facility. Yeah, and, yeah. they just give them beer to distract. <laughs> it just gives the the facility credit credibility as a research. College uh, students tend to be reptilian collaborators. Okay, enough <laughs> with the reptiles. Jeez. All right. So anyway, uh, you read one comment off one article and no, suddenly it all science goes. Fact. No, it's true. I, I'm sorry, folks. This came from the fact that I was reading an article from an Alaska publication about harp. And one of the comments was like, yeah, reptilians are behind this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and of course, like I said, when I did the episode about weather control, we got a lot of, of comments about the harp facility. Um, and again, most of it's just misunderstandings, you know, things that, uh, you know, you're, you're reading a report of a report of a report of a conspiracy theory. Um, and, uh, you know, they're, they've been pervasive and they've really, they certainly have, uh, a level of, um, like they're enticing, right? You know, the idea of, uh, some sort of secret organization or secret part of our government being in control of these massive, uh, powers, there's a weird attraction to that idea. Well, even if you did think HARP was something that was a secret government plot to control the weather, earthquakes, tsunamis, whatever, uh, you you need worry no longer. Yeah, because it's it's pretty much done. Look look elsewhere for your secret government facility that is doing those things. Uh, So so what's the the status on the facility? I I mean, any day now it could close for good. It's it's really – it's running through those last few experiments. And uh, as of the recording of this podcast, there have been no plans – to hand over the facility, like there's, there's not been an organization that stepped forward and say, said, we will fund this. I mean, it costs millions of dollars to run this, this facility because it, it takes a lot of power to actually do these, um, uh, these experiments. It's not, and it's not a cheap endeavor. So if some research facilities or private company comes in to, take over, then we could see it continue in action. Otherwise, it may just become an abandoned, forgotten site. And uh, I mean, it, it was abandoned for a little while in 2013. It might become permanently so in 2014. We'll have to wait and see. So anyway, that kind of wraps up this discussion about HARP. We just wanted to kind of take a closer look at it and, and demystify it for everybody. Yeah, and, but, and send out our good mojo into the universe, uh, possibly by earthquake or reptilian, whatever, you know, to, to hopefully someone will pick this thing back up. Yeah. Well, yeah, the good feelings I do have is that I think there is a bright future for more radio research. I mean, it's the thing, it's the kind of research we don't often think about. Yeah. Uh, but that really does yield important discoveries that figure into the kinds of technologies we use every day. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, here's hoping that this exploratory science continues in some form or another. And uh, guys, if you have been enjoying our show and you haven't visited FWThinking.com, go and go and do that. 
Go do the thing I just said. Go visit fwthinking.com. And the reason why I say that is because that's where we have videos, we've got podcasts, we've got blog posts, we have other material that relates to the stuff we talk about. It's all about science and technology in the future, and it's really exciting stuff. Well, you should go check it out. And remember, you can interact with us on social networks because we are present on Facebook, on Twitter, and Google Plus with FW Thinking. Come be part of the conversation. We actually had a a uh, suggestion recently pop up on the Facebook page that I'll be revealing to the other podcasters shortly as <laughs> after we go off the air because it's kind of cool. So be one of those. You know, let us know what you want to hear because that, that's really what we're here to to talk about. Have a, an interesting conversation about the future. And we will talk to you again really soon. For more on this topic and the future of technology, visit forwardthinking.com. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. Is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is. And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Good sleep should come naturally. And with the new Natural Hybrid mattress, it can. A collaboration between Lisa and West Elm. The Natural Hybrid is expertly crafted from natural latex, natural wool, and certified safe foams to elevate your sleep sanctuary and support a greener tomorrow. Plus, every purchase helps fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com slash iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash iHeart.